0: Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. Excited about tonight's lesson, and I started to, uh, in meditating about how to open the lesson tonight, I thought about apologizing. And this is why Uh, I thought about apologizing. Uh, not really an apology, but uh, just explaining that it seems as though I have touched on the things that are in this series that we began two weeks ago, uh, or, or no, it was last Wednesday night, wasn't it? Uh, I've touched on those things in messages that I preached over the last several months a few times, but when I think back, it it hasn't been all that many times, but uh, it is important that being an apostolic church, we proclaim the apostolic message quite frequently. I, I don't really think there's anything in the Word of God that you can say it too much or too often. Uh if it's done in the right way and in the right spirit especially, because the, the Word of God is true, and we need the Word of God. We need all of it. I've read and talked to other pastors and read uh, the writings of great pastors in our movement, in the apostolic movement, that I don't even have a privilege of having a personal relationship with, but they are widely, uh, widely esteemed among apostolics. And uh, pastor, m- many of them large churches, who have said, Brother Wright, that they go through series and teach different things. There are themes and subjects in the Bible that you need to, as a pastor, feed to your congregation on a regular basis. Uh, I read one pastor who every year preaches messages uh, throughout the year on certain themes that, of course, are subjects that are repeated, but we can't, again, get too much of the Word of God. He may preach on uh, giving of our finances two or three times a year. He may preach on salvation, preach on uh, the end time, and prophecy, and so forth as you go through the different subjects that you can pull out of the Word of God and and, uh, proclaim from the Word of God. So our series tonight, I'm not going to apologize for uh, talking some more about the apostolic truth and the doctrine that the apostles taught and the concepts of it. It is the basis for our being in this church building tonight, being a part of an apostolic church, and that is our apostolic identity and what makes us um, apostolic. Brother Terry, if you could get us rolling with the PowerPoint. Uh, That would be grand. So tonight is part two of uh, our apostolic identity, the series that we began last Wednesday. What is an apostolic? What does it mean to be apostolic? And I start off again with the same verse I did last time, found in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 10. Oh, my goodness, I have misspelled a word on that screen. That's a no-no for me. It's a no-no in our family. Uh, Our family is full of scholars, and they all make good grades. Somebody tell me what word is misspelled. It's the first word up there, isn't it? Thessalonians. And this is not Brother Terry's fault. It's mine. I'm the one that typed the PowerPoint slides tonight. Let's read what the Apostle Paul said. He said, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish... We're kind of uh, setting ourselves down in the middle of a sentence here. Uh, But those that are lost, that's what he means by those that perish, are lost because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You've got to love the truth. Paul talks in his writings, in his letters, about those who once obeyed the truth and walked in the truth and do no more Uh, do so no more, and the reason for that, most likely, not every time, but a lot of the times why someone leaves the truth is because of this right here that Paul says, they didn't have a love for it. I have a message that I've preached a couple of times in the last 29 years on loving the truth, and uh, that's very, very important. How many times, only God can count. My heart has been broken over the last 29 years over someone who left, not this church, but left the truth because they didn't love it. Uh, I told you this last week that uh, there are more than 18 million apostolics worldwide, and that is a, uh, an old statistic. There, there are several million more than that now. I couldn't find uh, an up-to-date statistic. Actually, nobody, but God really knows. Because many, there are millions of apostolics who worship God and serve God as an apostolic, Pentecostal, in countries where they're not free to let that be known. And because of that, we can't really count them. But I did read today in preparation for this lesson that uh, in Asia, particularly in the country of China, At last count, and again, this is a statistic that's several years old, there were at least 3.3 million apostolics in one organization alone. I think it was called the Church of Jesus or the True Church of Jesus. Apostolic, Pentecostal, they believe it just like we do, Acts 2.38. Behind the Iron Curtain in just the nation of China. So there are millions and millions of apostolics around the world that worship God as we do and believe it as we do when we go to the Scriptures and we look at just what an apostolic is. What does that mean? Last time we went through how that, uh, the apostles who began the church on the day of Pentecost at Jesus' direction and instruction uh, taught uh, some things, and we're going to go over that tonight. And then as the years went by, they uh, found, or history saw, that people began to be deterred from what the apostles taught, practiced, and preached. And other ways of believing and different doctrines were introduced into the church or into Christianity until you have uh, within two to three hundred years after Jesus the uh, forming of the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church became known as the church and uh, I took you through all of that, how that we, the the Christian church went astray and then how we came back through uh, last century, the 1900s, back to uh, the Lord established the truths that the apostles believed and taught so that they are now restored in a great, way, and as I've said in the, in the line of millions of people believing this apostolic, what the apostles believe. and uh, what, what does it mean to be an apostolic? A good definition, I believe, is in this verse in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost after the Holy Ghost fell. It says, they that gladly received his word, this is Peter, were baptized right after he preached. The first sermon on the day of Pentecost. And that same day there were added unto them that one day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Everybody say apostles' doctrine. And fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This is what the apostles believed what they taught, what they preached, and what they themselves practiced and told everybody else to practice or to do to be saved and to live for God. So it's called here in this verse the Apostles' Doctrine. It is based on what they understood Jesus and what he instructed them to do and preach. Uh. You've got to remember those men, those 12 men. Now, there were 12 apostles. We know that one of them fell right before uh, this whole thing came to a head when Jesus was bar- uh, crucified and then buried and then rose again. In fact, the night of Jesus' trial, the, day, the night before he was crucified, Judas, as we know, uh, identified who Jesus was for the Roman Uh, and the high priest and the the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, so that they could take him away to trial and his subsequent uh, crucifixion. But Judas didn't make it, did he? He uh, ended up trying to undo what he did with the men that he did it with, He took the money they'd given him, 30 uh, 30 pieces of silver, and tried to give it back to them, didn't he? To the high priest and his cronies who were pushing the Roman uh, governor to crucify Jesus. They said, he's broken our Jewish law. And Pilate said, I find no fault in him. And they pushed hard enough. And it was God's plan. So they finally convinced uh, Pontius Pilate to order Jesus' crucifixion. But Judas didn't partake in anything that took place after that because when he couldn't give the money back, he threw it down on the floor of the temple and did what? He killed himself, committed suicide, went out and hanged himself. So you find in the first chapter of the book of Acts, uh, the 11 that were left went through a process of choosing another. Going to lay a little background here and just who the 12 apostles were. Uh, there were some restrictions, there were some requirements that they had to fulfill uh, for this apostle, whoever it was that was going to take Judas' place among the 12. That man, that individual, had to meet certain requirements. Number one, he had to Have known Jesus firsthand and followed Jesus throughout his ministry. So, some three and a half, approximately three and a half years, beginning with when he was 30 and his baptism in the river Jordan by John the Baptist, Jesus went up from Jordan, the Bible says, from being baptized and began to publicly minister. He did two things. He worked miracles and signs and wonders. He healed people. He helped people. And number two, he proclaimed the word of God and and taught, preached. There's The word preached is used and the word taught. For three and a half years, and these men followed him, these 12 uh, disciples. They were his 12 closest disciples. He had many disciples that followed him, though, during this time. At some point in that three and a half years, he took those 12 unto himself and took them places that everybody else didn't follow. But to be uh, an apostle, to take Judas' place, that man had to not only have known Jesus and followed Jesus through that three and a half years of his ministry, he also had to be a witness to the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So the disciples, the eleven, got together. They prayed. And then the Bible says, I've kind of found this a little bit amusing through the years Can somebody tell me what they did to actually choose? They drew lots. We we would call that today in our modern wording, they drew straws. (laughs) They they picked two men. The Bible says they prayed first. They prayed for the will of God. Now, remember, this was before the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, so they didn't have the Holy Ghost to help them with one of the gifts of the spirit, the the gift of knowledge. So they're having to do this the old-fashioned way. But they prayed, and they had confidence enough in God that He was going to show them the right one. And they choose two. They chose two men. I forgot who uh, the other one was, but uh, Matthias was the one that got. I don't know if it was the longer straw or the shorter straw, but he was the one that they chose to take his place. Now. When I was in Bible college, I had to write a whole paper, a research paper, on this subject or this question. Who was the 12th apostle? Was it Matthias or was it another gentleman in the New Testament who proclaimed himself to be an apostle? Anybody tell me who that was? He wrote half the books of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. He said he was an apostle, and he went to great pains in two or three places in his letters that he wrote that are in the New Testament to make the argument that he was an apostle. So either he was the 12th apostle or, I don't know, maybe there were 13. All I know is this. I don't remember what I wrote in the paper and what the other ladies and gentlemen in the class wrote, but... but I do know this, the book of Revelation says there's 12 gates in heaven and 12 foundations wherein are written the names of the 12 apostles. So when we get to heaven, that's when that instructor who gave my class that research assignment, he's going to find out which one is the 12th apostle because There's not 13 gates. There's not 13 foundations. There's only 12. So I'm kind of curious to see if it's Matthias or Paul. I would kind of, my opinion would be I would lean toward Paul, but we'll find out. Uh, So these 12 men, they followed Jesus for three and a half years. Now think about this. He spent three and a half years not just teaching publicly to the masses, to crowds of thousands, But he spent a lot of time with these men alone and in private. You read through the four gospels and you get the impression that it was very rarely, it was very rare that these twelve men ever left his side during that three and a half years. Uh, Now I'm sure some of them did at times to go back home and see about their families. A lot of them had wives and children. But Jesus spent three and a half years pouring into these men what they were supposed to do after he was gone. He was leaving it in their hands, in the hands, yes, of frail humanity, imperfect human beings to start and carry on his church. Now, we know that he's the founder of it, but he told them to go and preach the message that would cause people to be added to the church, to believe and obey the gospel and be added to the family of God. So here's the thing. They left the upper room. Well, they started in the upper room, and Peter preached that day. And then they went out from the upper room after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and they preached the gospel. They told people how to be saved how to be brought into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. Now, they either got it right or they got it wrong. I don't see any other way around that sentence being true. So here's the thing. If they got it wrong, then how can we believe anything that they said or did? Because if they got anything wrong, if they got baptism wrong, they only baptized in Jesus' name. They never baptized somebody in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If they got that wrong, if they really were supposed to say the words, the actual words like some people say, because Jesus said those words when he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. If they were supposed to use those exact words, the Trinitarian, uh, like the Trinitarians do, then they got it wrong because they didn't baptize that way. They baptized in Jesus' name exclusively and only. You will not find anybody being baptized any other way. So if they got that wrong, if they got baptism, the baptismal formula wrong, then how do we know what else they got wrong? So here's here's what I've come to decide for me, and everybody has to decide for themselves, that I'm going to believe the apostles' doctrine that's in that verse. In other words, what the apostles believed themselves, what they told others to, to do to be saved what they preached and what they practiced, all of it. Because if you don't take all of what they preached and taught and do it their way, then you might as well just throw it all out. You might as well throw the whole New Testament away because they're the ones that wrote it. Okay. So what is the apostles' doctrine? Uh, What did they believe? Well, there are three main things that they taught. Number one, the new birth. Number two, The oneness of the Godhead. And number three, separation from the world, also called holiness. This is what they believed, what they preached, what they practiced. And we're going to go through each of these three tonight. Number one, the new birth. John chapter 3. Now, I didn't put most of the scriptures up here word for word because you know them. And uh, I'm just going to run through them real fast. But uh, John chapter 3. Uh, and verse 1 through 8. In fact, I'm not even going to read that. This is the account of when Jesus at night had a visitor by the name of Nicodemus who was a Pharisee. And Nicodemus said, we know you're a teacher from God. He wanted more clarification. I I believe he really was hungry. History says that Nicodemus became a Christian, born again. He obeyed Acts 2.38 at some point after the day of Pentecost. I really believe his heart was sincere when he came to Jesus that night. And Jesus told him, You must be born again of the water and of the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. That sounds to me like a formula for being saved. Wouldn't you equate the sentence to enter the kingdom of God with how to be saved? I don't think the two can be separated. And he said, You must be born again of the water. That's baptism, and you must be born again spiritually uh, of the Spirit. That's Holy Ghost in filling. So this is a foundational Scripture. If you're trying to teach someone, give them an introduction to what it means to be apostolic and what apostolics believe, you can uh, use this as one of the foundational Scriptures to do that. So how does the new birth happen? It happens by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. They went and preached the gospel. The word gospel literally means the good news. The Greek word literally means the good news of Jesus Christ. But it has three parts. And all of Christianity agrees on this, as far as I know. Every denomination there is, everyone I put up on the screen last week, they believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message by which lives are changed through the power of God. Paul said in Romans 1 and 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Paul said in Galatians 1 and 8 that the gospel will not work for you if you take away from it any part or if you add to it. He said, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be what? Accursed. That word in the Greek literally means to be crucified, to be hanged on a tree. So the gospel has three parts, the death and the burial and the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, Paul said, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. You're saved by the gospel. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you. He says, "If if you don't, then you've believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. See, here's how Paul could be an apostle. Immediately after his conversion, after he repented, after he was baptized in Jesus' name and received the Holy Ghost, Ananias laid hands on him, and he received the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. He immediately went away into Arabia for, Bible scholar, tell me how long? Three years. That's right, brother. Three years. And during that time in his writings, Paul lets us know that he had an encounter with the Lord, that he saw Jesus face to face. He, uh, that's why he could say that he was an apostle, a bona fide, legitimate apostle. He said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died, that's the death, for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again. There you have it, one, two, three, the third day, according to the scriptures, or in other words, according to the Old Testament prophets. They had prophesied that the Lord would do all that. So Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. And how do we apply that to our life? We die out to sin through repentance, we repent, we are buried with him in baptism, and we rise to walk in newness of life when we receive the Holy Ghost. That's why in the very first church service in church history, after the very first sermon was preached by one of the apostles, After the very first time someone ever asked, what shall we do? At the very first altar call given in the church age, Peter said to obey the gospel by doing three things. And you all know what he said. In Acts 2 and 38. Let's see if we can, if there's any one verse in the Bible you ought to memorize, even if you're not a memorizer, you ought to do whatever you have to do to memorize Acts 2, 38. Let's say it together out loud, shall we? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Did I leave something out? What was it? Be baptized how? In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness. And the word your is not in there, but it's implied. For the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So obeying the gospel is repentance, baptism, and in water in Jesus' name and receiving the Holy Ghost. Let's read what it said about Jesus in Luke 24. And I mentioned this a while ago. When Jesus spent time with the apostles, remember that, three and a half years, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance... There's repentance. And remission of sins. He doesn't mention baptism here, but he apparently told them other times that that's how it happens. Should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send, here's number three, the promise of my Father upon you. And he told them to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until that came to pass. Jesus said, I'll be crucified, I'll be buried, and then I'll rise again. And so because of that, we repent, and we are buried with him in baptism, and then we rise again spiritually in the Holy Ghost. So the very last thing that Jesus did on earth, we find here with his disciples, was emphasize to them how to obey the gospel. There's only one true salvation message regardless of what all the denominations may say. And it is not that we are right or apostolics are right and they're wrong. That's not it. Here's, if someone says that to you, well, you think you all are right and you're the only ones going to heaven. No, God's the judge about who goes to heaven uh, and, and, and apostolics that, that go to an apostolic church uh, are not the only ones that are right. There are others who practice what the apostles did who may not even call themselves apostles, but that's the key. You, the apostles' doctrine and what they preached and what they did. T- tell a person that says that to you next time someone does that it's not that we're right and everybody else is wrong or somebody else is wrong. It's that the Bible is right. And whoever doesn't believe it the way the Bible says, they're wrong. Don't shoot the messenger. We're not the judge of who's right and who's wrong. The Bible is. The Word of God. So, the first step, let's go through this quickly, is what? Repentance. Jesus said, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Repentance is not just accepting the gospel or accepting the good news. Jesus died, and it includes, but it's it's not just being sorry for your sins. It is Offering yourself completely to the Lord as a sacrifice for the gospel. It's being sorry enough to change. That's right, Brother Kenny, to turn around. The word repent literally means to do a 180. You're going in one direction the way the world and sin wants you to, and you stop, you quit doing everything the world and sin wants you to do and the devil wants you to do, and you turn around and you go in the exact opposite direction. That's what repent means. Being sorry enough to change. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Let me say this. Repentance is not a feeling. It is a turning around. It's in my notes. It's an about face. It's an inward change of our our attitude to an outward change of our actions. And unless both of those occur, then repentance hasn't taken place. You know, I think we do folks a disservice sometimes when we talk them into being baptized in, in a real big hurry. And the reason I think that I'm right in saying that is because how many people have we seen get baptized and they they lose out with God very soon after or maybe even not even see them darken the door of the church again. I'm convinced that most of the time a person that does that, that is baptized and then doesn't even come to church, that they weren't truly repented in the first place. It's great to try to get people to be baptized, but we need to make sure before we... Trot them up there and put the robe on them and make them go and, and ask them to go in the water in Jesus' name. That they are repented, that they understand what they're doing. You're, you can't walk in the world anymore. You can't live for the devil anymore. You've got to live for Jesus. He's got to be the most important thing in your life. You need to fall in love with him and make God the most important entity and thing in your entire existence. Repentance is essential for salvation. God has already done his part. And then the good news is announced, but it's up to us, not God, whether we're going to do that. Many people today think that they're saved through just, uh, quote, accepting Christ as their Savior. Or, quote, unquote, asking Jesus into their heart. Or, quote, unquote, believing in Jesus. You know, I, I've, I've seen, I've watched on television. I remember when I was a boy seeing on television uh, one of the most famous Christian, uh, I won't even say what denomination he's from, preachers, television preachers who used to have, uh, crusades in stadiums packed with thousands, tens of thousands of people, 40, 50, 60, 100,000 people would come to this preacher's crusades. And I believe the man was fully and completely sincere in what he was doing. And he would give the invitation at the end of his sermon and ask people to come forward and accept Christ. And I'm sure there were thousands of people who came forward and did that and walked out of the stadium, and not one iota change took place in their life. Uh, Or or get baptized. That's right, brother. That's not repentance. Uh, Repentance is a change. Okay. Uh, The second step in the new birth is baptism in water. Jesus said, In Mark 16, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And some people take the next phrase that he said and use it to argue with you against baptism. Blows my mind. He went on to say, he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So he that believeth is baptized is going to be saved, but he that believeth not is going to be lost. That's what damned means here. People say to me, "Well, he didn't say, and they who uh, don't aren't baptized are going to be lost." No, because if you don't believe, you're not going to be baptized. Duh. I love using that word. The second step, baptism, is very important, and uh, we already talked about Matthew 28. 18 and 19, Jesus said, Go ye into all the world, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. His disciples correctly interpreted what he said and used the only name that they had been given for God, which was Jesus. Uh, Let me say this. There are no delayed baptisms in the New Testament. In other words, it was not proper procedure for someone to be presented with the thought of baptism and to delay or put it off to think about it a while i'm sure people did that people do that now but my 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 point is it's not something to be delayed because it's not an option it's necessary uh, let me tell you why there were no delayed baptisms. Acts 2 and 41, it says the same day they were baptized. Acts 16, 33, the same hour they were baptized. Acts 9 and 19, immediately they were baptized. Acts 10 and 48, he commanded them to be baptized. Acts 22, 16, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the apostles heard Jesus say things like, I'm coming in my Father's name. They heard angels from heaven say, Thou shalt call his name Jesus. And they heard Jesus say, The Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name. So we find that the only way the apostles baptized in the book of Acts was through and in some form of the name of Jesus. In Acts 2.38, Peter said the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8.16, it says the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 10.48, the name of the Lord. The disciples of John in Acts 19, it says the name of the Lord Jesus. I've just read to you the only four scriptures where somebody is baptized. On the day of Pentecost, the Samaritans in Acts 8. Cornelius' house on his, in Act 10, in Acts 10, disciples of John in Acts 19. These are the only places in the New Testament where it says what happened when somebody was baptized, after the church began. Think about this, Matthew 28:19. Do you know when Matthew wrote his gospel? Matthew wrote his gospel, the book of Matthew. It wasn't written until somewhere around A.D. 62. So, if Jesus really meant to use the words that are the titles, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they've been doing it wrong for some 30 years. And again, if they got that wrong, how do we know what else they got wrong? We put on Christ when we're baptized. Galatians 3 and 27. Uh, says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, Acts 19, uh, what if I've already been baptized a different way? Here's a great example of what to tell somebody who has been baptized as a Christian in some Christian church, but they weren't baptized in Jesus' name and presented with the question, should I get baptized again? If it wasn't in Jesus' name, well, we have biblical Proof that the answer is yes. That's what the Apostle Paul told these disciples of John in Acts chapter 19 when he found out they hadn't been baptized in Jesus' name. He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. We are buried with the Lord in baptism. Romans 6 verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We are reasons to be baptized. We enter into a covenant with the Lord when we are baptized. Colossians 2 and 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In... Putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ in the Old Testament, circumcision of male uh, uh, Jews on the eighth day was the outward sign. It was the token. That's what token means. A sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. That physical act was a a a a, a completely legal and necessary event for God to recognize his covenant with them. Moses was on his way to being put to death by God. Here Moses, I don't know what God thought he was going to do. I guess he had another plan, plan B in mind. Plan A was for Moses to lead, be the leader, the go-between between God and the Jews, to lead God's people out of Egypt all the way to Canaan, through the wilderness into Canaan. God's plan A was Moses to be the one to do it. Well, at some point, Moses married an Ethiopian woman, and God never took issue with Moses for marrying someone who wasn't a Jew. We find later he gave the commandment in the law. He gave the commandment to his people, don't marry outside of the Jewish race. But at that point, he hadn't said that, and so... God didn't chasten or chastise or criticize Moses for marrying an Ethiopian woman. But what God did find issue with and what God got so mad about was when Moses and this woman had a son, he wasn't circumcised. And so God was going to kill Moses for breaking the covenant. So in God's mind, you know, listen to this. Circumcision in the, in the Old Testament is a type or a shadow. And you know what that means. It's, it's pointing ahead to something in the New Testament. Circumcision, physical circumcision in the Old Testament was a type or a shadow pointing ahead to spiritual circumcision in the New Testament, which is baptism. Baptism is the token by which God recognizes we have accepted his covenant, and we've entered into this covenant with him and If you think Moses God was going to kill Moses like I say, I don't know what God's plan B was to maybe get Joshua or somebody else to take Moses' place to do the rest of the leading them through the wilderness, I don't know, but if God was going to kill Moses, now Moses went ahead, and his wife circumcised the boy, so God backed off and didn't kill him. But if God was going to kill Moses for that one, what some of us might think is a small thing, we need to realize it wasn't small to God. Then how do we think we're going to escape in the New Testament by not obeying God's command and doing what God wants, which is a part of our confirming our covenant with God and proving that we are entering into our covenant with God by doing the spiritual circumcision, which Paul says in this scripture is baptism. Colossians two and eleven: ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Colon, and we know that whatever's on the left side of a colon is going to be explained or uh, defined on the right. He says, "What is the circumcision of Christ?" The next words out of Paul's mouth are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. So baptism is, is spiritual circumcision. It, it's the sign or the outward token or sign that we have entered into the covenant with God. And if God was going to kill Moses in the Old Testament because he didn't want to do it, then I can easily say how God is saying, Oh, you're not willing to take my, co- my token, my sign, then you're not in covenant with me. Baptism is an announcement of a covenant, not by you, but by God. It's not just you saying I belong to Jesus. It is Jesus saying you belong to me. We are in covenant together. Baptism is absolutely essential for salvation. John 20 and 23. Whosoever sins you remit, They're remitted unto them, and whosoever sins, he told his disciples, you retain, they are retained. You say, but the church doesn't have the power to forgive. That's what remit means. We don't have the power to forgive people's sins, do we? Only Jesus does. So what does this verse mean? It means whoever we baptize has their sins remitted or washed away. And whoever we don't baptize still has their sins. Peter said, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. Let's go further with scriptural proof. Paul compares baptism to crossing the Red Sea. The children of Israel, when God took them through the Red Sea, it was more than just proving that he was a big God and could do anything physically that they needed done. He took them through the Red Sea for another very important reason, because their going through the Red Sea was another type or shadow of something that was come to come in the New Testament, and that was, of course, baptism. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. Once Israel crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his armies couldn't get to them through the water. The same thing is true, that was physical, spiritually with us in the New Testament. The devil cannot legally bring up your past to God or to you. God declares that he has forgotten your past. Only you can choose to go back to your past. Isn't baptism a lovely thing? Let's lift our hands and praise God that we have the privilege of wearing his name by being baptized in it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for such a wonderful plan to bring us into right relationship with you. Thank you for baptism. What a lovely way it is to identify with you By taking on your name, the name, Lord, that saves from sin. The name, the only name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Finally, number three, the third step in the new birth is the Holy Ghost. But ye shall receive power in Acts 1 and 8. Jesus told them just before he ascended back to heaven, after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me. So the new birth experience is designed to let your old life die. That's in repentance. And for it to be buried, that's in baptism. And it's designed to give you literally a new life by the power of the Holy Ghost. The point of the resurrection isn't just that Jesus got up or came out of that grave, but that I can get up and out of the deadness of my old life in sin. Praise God. Jesus being put to death was an act of men. His burial was an act of men. But Jesus' resurrection was an act of God. Think about it. Repentance is my action in response to the gospel. Baptism is my action in response to the gospel. But the Holy Ghost is God's action in response to my obedience in the first two. Romans 8 and 11. But if the Spirit Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, that's the Holy Ghost, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. If you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're not going in the rapture, in other words. That's how I read this scripture. I don't see how you can interpret it any other way. The spirit is what is going to be resurrects you out of the grave and out of this planet Earth when the Lord comes back for his church. Now, Jesus... When he was resurrected, he rose from that grave in a glorified body. He really didn't need the stone rolled away so he could get out. But the stone was rolled away, think about it, as a sign to us that he had actually literally risen from the dead. And the Holy Ghost is God's spirit. It it encompasses a whole lot more than just speaking in tongues. But speaking in tongues is given as a sign, just like the rolling away of the stone, to us that we have actually literally received the Holy Ghost. Some say you can receive God's Spirit without speaking in tongues, but that's not found in the Bible. Every Christian in your Bible spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Ghost. That's what it says. Hebrews 10 and 16, whereof the Holy Ghost also is witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is a covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. Acts 2, you know the story when the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place and the Holy Ghost fell on them. I won't go through and read the rest of that. Musicians, would you come? So, this speaking in tongues is that. Peter stood up and he said, This is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. And here's all the listings of every instance in the New Testament where somebody received the Holy Ghost. And in every one of those... I don't think there's anyone here that I have to go through and read the verses. In every single case, they spoke with tongues or a language that they didn't know what they were saying. They never learned. Uh, You'll find that in all of these instances. Now, we apostolics, we didn't start out in the beginning Uh, with as much class (laughs) as we think, as we may think we have today. Uh, First it was 120 people 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Remember now that first 120, they worshiped God in that upper room so profoundly and so intensely that the onlookers thought they were drunk you remember that they said these are drunken and Peter said no these are not drunken as you suppose yeah they're drunk but not on on uh on the wine that you're thinking about uh, well we are descendants of those people spiritual descendants uh and next it was 60 people uh, or next it was uh 2,000 or 3,000 that day and then Uh, several thousand in the next chapter and then the number says uh, number without without counting and you fast forward and I talked about this a little bit last week but I found uh, something that I want to read for you it's very interesting it was about 60 people that began in a little old decrepit building at 312 Azusa Street in the industrial part of Los Angeles in the year of 1906 when the latter rain began to really pick up. The Old Testament prophesied of the former rain as the rain uh, that comes at the beginning of harvest, the harvest period in the natural and it happened spiritually in the book of Acts. And then the latter rain The Lord promised there would be a great revival. This is why you hear preachers say there's going to be a great revival in this end time just before the rapture. They're getting that from the Bible where it says the latter rain that the Lord talks about. That latter rain began in full force uh, in 1906 when the revival that they had there on Azusa Street ran nonstop in day and night prayer meetings for over three years. By mid-May of 1906, anywhere from 300 to 1,500 people would attempt to fit into the building on any given day. People from a diversity of backgrounds came together to worship. Men, women, children, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, rich, poor, illiterate, educated, uneducated. People of all ages flocked to Los Angeles with both skepticism. Oh, yeah, there were critics there just like there were on the day of Pentecost. But there also came many thousands with a desire for God and a hunger for God. The worship at 312 Azusa Street was frequent and spontaneous, with services going almost around the clock. The Los Angeles Times and other newspapers were not kind in their description. At least this one reporter wasn't. Let me me read for you his account of Azusa Street. Meetings are held in a tumble-down shack on Azusa Street and the devotees of the weird doctrine practice the most fanatical rites, preach the wildest theories, and work themselves into a state of mad excitement in their particular zeal. The night is made hideous in the neighborhood by the howlings of worshipers who spend hours swaying forth and back in a nerve-wracking attitude of prayer and supplication. They claim to have the, quote, gift of tongues, unquote, and be able to understand the babble. There is a disgraceful intermingling of the races. This is what he wrote. They cry and make howling noises all day and into the night. They run, jump, shake all over, shout to the top of their voice, spin around in circles, fall out on the sawdust-blanketed floor, jerking, kicking, and rolling all over it. How many of you have been in a church service where we had there were holy rollers. It's been years since I've seen that. I used to do it when I was a young man, Brother Fred. My, my best friend and I, Brother Ron Cox, he pastors an apostolic church in Indiana today. We went to Bible college together. Best friends growing up in the church together. Many a Monday would find he and I going over to that little church building at 929 East Range Road where only 50 or 60 or 70 people attended. We had to go over there with uh, a bucket and some water and some, some kind of cleaner and a cloth to wash our black heel marks off of the tile floor where we had been holy rolling in the service on Sunday night the night before uh, and, and kicking the marks into the tile. Some of them pass out and do not move for hours as though they were dead. These people appear to be mad, mentally deranged or under a spell. They claim to be filled with the Spirit They have a one-eyed, illiterate Negro as their preacher who stays on his knees much of the time with his head hidden between the wooden milk crates. He doesn't talk very much, but at times he can be heard shouting, Repent! And he's supposed to be running the whole thing. And they repeatedly sing the same song. The Comforter has come. The Comforter has come. You know what? little could those readers of that newspaper, the Los Angeles Times have guessed that in the years to follow, historians would say that the Azusa Street Revival gave birth to modern Pentecostalism and became the most significant revival of the 20th century in terms of world evangelism and it has only grown as we've gone into the 21st century. Praise God. Let's stand together. I don't know about you, but I don't know the words of the song. There was a song that somebody wrote. I'm glad I'm one of them, but I do know the words of this song. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. Calvary Church is located at 406 North 44th Street in Mount Vernon, Illinois. Service times are Sunday school at 1 p.m. every Sunday, except the last Sunday of each month and worship service at 2 p.m. Also, we have an all-church service at 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday. Calvary Church is affiliated with the United Pentecostal Church International. Thank you and have a blessed day.